Well, I want to talk with you today. If you have your Bibles, turn in them to Luke chapter 24 and verse 47. I just sent a, another book to the publisher. I've been working on it for a good year or so. And I've never enjoyed writing a book more than this one. Uh, because this one is completely and totally focused on who Jesus is. And... Um, you know, Jesus is not a secondary thought in the Bible. He's not an afterthought. Uh, Jesus is the uh, supreme focus of the Bible. He's the axis around which all of the rest of Scripture revolves. Uh, one individual made this statement, and I think this is extremely helpful is to understand that there's many different ways you can divide the Bible up into categories and sections and things like that. I mean, we obviously think of, you know, the Old Testament as being a section and then the New Testament being a section. But really, you can break up those into smaller sections. Old Testament, you can break up the first five books, the Pentateuch, and then the historical books, and then the poetic books, and then the prophetic books, that's one way. The New Testament, you've got the Gospels, you've got the Book of Acts, which is history, you've got the Epistles, you've got the Revelation, that type of thing. But I'm just going to take the Old Testament as a single unit and then, and then bring in those other four elements of the New Testament as well. If you take the Bible in five major sections, the Old Testament is all preparation for Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament is preparing the way for a coming Messiah. I mean, as soon as mankind sins and messes up, uh, God speaks of the seed of a woman who is going to crush the head of the serpent. That, that's considered to be the first. I mean, it's in Genesis chapter 3. You barely get past the first couple pages, and already there's a promise about Jesus. And then you read a little bit further, and God tells Abraham, through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And, and, and just hundreds of prophetic promises and types and shadows, uh, prophetic pictures of who Jesus is going to to be and what he is going to do. So the Old Testament, one way of looking at it is, is that the Old Testament is all preparation for Jesus. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the manifestation of Jesus. It's when the promised one, the prophesied one, actually shows up on the scene. And, you know, for 33 years, he, he loves and lives and serves and sacrifices and ends up giving his life for the sin of the world and then is raised from the dead. So the Gospels are the manifestation of Jesus. Then the book of Acts, which begins basically a little bit before the day of Pentecost and goes all the way from Jerusalem to Rome, because Jerusalem was the you know, capital city of the Jewish uh, faith, but Rome was the capital of the Gentile world. So the book of Acts shows the propagation of Jesus, the proclamation, if you uh, find that word simpler, uh, the proclamation of Jesus from the center of Judaism 
to the center of the Gentile world. Then the book of uh, the, the epistles, you know, Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians and all the letters on through the letters of Peter and James and John and all that, the, uh, and Jude, the epistles are the explanation of his work. The explanation of his work. And finally, the book of Revelation is the consummation of his kingdom. So Jesus is the central theme of all of the Bible. If you don't know that, if somebody just picked up a Bible and started reading it, they'd think, what's all this, all these genealogies of the Old Testament and this person begat that person, I mean, you know, and this king did this. And the Old Testament is all setting the stage for Jesus coming. So the Old Testament is the, help, help me out here, the Old Testament is preparation for Jesus. The Gospels are the manifestation of Jesus when he actually shows up. The book of Acts is the propagation of his message or the proclamation of his message throughout the world. And then the, the epistles, the letters, are the explanation of his work. In the Gospels, you see what Jesus did. In the epistles, you see what it means. It, some, one person said it this way, the Gospels are like a photograph. The epistles are like a, an, an x-ray, an MRI, or a CAT scan. It shows the internal uh, meaning and, and application in our lives. And then the book of Revelation is the consummation of his kingdom. It's where all these, what maybe people would think, all, all these different loose ends all of a sudden come together in him and Jesus reigns forever and ever. I wanted to share with you Luke chapter 24, verse 27, because after Jesus' resurrection, he met with a couple of the disciples that were walking, and they were confused. They, they, number one, they hadn't fully grasped the fact that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Um, even though Jesus told them a dozen times he was going to be raised from the dead, it was kind of like, oh, we never thought about that. And uh, so they're, you know, they've seen Jesus crucified, tortured, sadistically, cruelly beaten, and so on. And, and uh, they saw him die on the cross and put in a tomb. But now Jesus is alive. And he meets with a couple of these disciples. And Luke 24, 47 says, Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Can we read that one more time and think about what we're reading here? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses. That's uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And all the prophets, that's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, you know, all those explaining from the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, what would you think? Now, see, see, your pastor is so kind and he's very respectful and Pastor David here was so kind and respectful. So you probably feel like you're supposed to be respectful and that type of thing, which I, which I like, I like that. 
And, uh, but what would happen? You have your full Bible there, Pastor yes, Dave? Sir. Let me. Yeah, please open it. Okay. I've got Pastor Dave's Bible. Is this stuck in there? It's stuck in there. I'll get it up. But, but how many of you know the Bible's pretty substantial? The Bible's, what would you think if I got up, no matter how much Pastor Tony is kind and respectful of me and so on, what would you do if I got up here to preach today and said, now we're going to start in Genesis and we're going to go through Malachi. That's a huge chunk of scripture. And I'm going to explain how it's all about me. I'm going to share with you that I am the central focus of the entire... See, at that time, the New Testament hadn't been written. So the Bible was the Old Testament. What would you do? What would you say if I got up and said, I'm going to take you through Genesis to Malachi... And I'm going to explain to you how it's all about me. Yeah, somebody just said bye. <laughs> yeah, I hope you would say, you're delusional. You must be the biggest narcissist, megalomaniac. I mean, you're, you're, you, you know, you're not even in touch with reality if you think the Bible's all about you. I would, hope, I would hope probably that you get up and walk out because you say, I, I'm not going to listen to some crazy guy claiming that the whole Bible is about him. But you know what? That's exactly what Jesus did. You know what the difference is? He was right. He's the only one that could do that. C.S. Lewis, one of the brilliant literary minds of the 20th century said, Jesus, you can't say he's a good man. You can't say he's just a good teacher. He said, he is one of three things. He is either Lord, he is a liar, or he is a lunatic. They're, those are the only three options on Jesus. Because if he's not Lord, if he's not the Son of God, and he claimed that all this was about him, and he said, I am the light of the world. I am, you know, the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but through me. You know, if he made all the outlandish claims he made, and they're not true, and he knew they were not true, but he said them anyway, then he's a liar. If they're not true, and he thought they were true and said them. He said, and if he really believed it and it's not true, then he's a lunatic. To borrow his words, he said, he's, he's along the lines of a poached egg, you know, just, you know, completely devoid of reality. So Jesus, because you can't say, oh, I don't think he was really... Lord, I just think he was a good man and a good teacher. Well, good men and good teachers don't claim to be the savior of the world if they're not. So he's either Lord, liar, or lunatic. So having established that, Jesus is the theme of the Bible. Preparation, manifestation, proclamation, explanation, 
consummation. How many of you know that consummation is still in front of us? Now, I want to share with you very quickly some reasons why Jesus came. And the reason is, uh, the reason I want to share this with you is I believe that the days that we're living in and so many um, people are espousing so many different ideas about so many different things. I believe it's, I mean, it's always important, but there's never been a more important time than to really stay centered and focused on Jesus himself. Because there's so many tangents. And I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to be critical of anyone. But, but I mean, if you get your theology from social media, oh my goodness. People giving this opinion, that opinion, this tangent, that, this detour, this. I mean, it, there's never been a more important time than that we focus on who Jesus is and why he came. I'm going to share with you just some of these very briefly. Number one, why did Jesus come? Number one, he came to reveal the Father. He came to reveal the Father. To put it simply, he came to show us what the Father is really, really like. I I heard that Pastor Tony's been teaching on the goodness of God. Is that correct? And what a, a number one, I, your pastor, you've got a gem of a pastor. He, he stays so biblical and so focused and things that are important. And um, one of the ways we know about the goodness of God, not only does the Bible tell us he's good many times, but we know he's good because Jesus came to be the representation of the Father, the visible representation of the invisible God. Uh, Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. You know, when I first, I was raised in a mainline denominational church, and I, I, I always hesitate to say this because I want to sound critical or negative, but I had some wrong perceptions of God. And uh, just several things, you know, as a kid, I'd hear different things. You know, I I remember always around Easter time, like the week before Easter, they'd preach on the crucifixion. And they get to that point where Jesus is on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I thought, that's just terrible. God doesn't come and help his own son. And he's perfect. If he won't help his own son when he's in trouble, why would God ever help me if I'm in trouble? And I just figured out as a little kid, uh, I can't, you can't depend on God. He'll bail on you when, it, when it's, you know, really bad. And, and, you know, if he abandons his perfect son, why would he ever come to my help? See, I didn't understand. Jesus was our substitute there. He was suffering rejection for our sins so we would never have to be rejected. He was experiencing the abandonment that was the result of our sin. The Bible says our sins were laid on him. He was experiencing that as our substitute so that we would never know what it is to be rejected. He was bearing our punishment, our penalty, and so on. 
and so, um, but one of the things, when I, when, I, when I was 18 years old, I experienced the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And that was such a radical experience for my life. Because I'd always heard about the Holy Spirit at the end of a creed or at the end of a prayer, but I didn't know him as a person. And so if you were like me and you kind of came into the spirit-filled movement at the end of the 70s, there were a lot of God things going on, but boy, there was a lot of goofy things going on too in the name of God. And so I didn't know how to distinguish, you know, what's God and then what's just people acting silly because they act silly. And uh, so I came up with this conclusion about the Trinity. Here is my definition of the Trinity. As an 18-year-old who had just gotten spirit-filled, God, the Father, is the mean side of God. He's the angry side. You don't really want to deal with him because he's pretty ticked off at everybody. Jesus, the Son of God, the Son is the nice side of God. He's the friendly member of the Trinity. And the Holy Spirit, He's the spooky, unpredictable, you never know what He's going to do part of the Trinity. Now, if, if you know biblically what the Trinity really is, you know that they're not, that's not accurate at all. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, hey, there's coming a day when you won't talk to me about these things. You'll talk to the Father because the Father himself loves you. So anyway, but Jesus came to reveal the Father to us. Um, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, I'm going to read it in several translations. So, And I did not give any of these guys in the booth any of these scriptures ahead of time, so... Um, they may keep up a little bit, but don't. they're probably used to getting all these ahead of time. The New Living Translation of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, The Son, well, they got it up already. The Son, the, but you can't keep up with my other translations. All right. The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. The New American Standard Bible, but you can't keep up, says he is the radiance of his... They're good. Too good. Too good. All right. He is... (laughs) That's amazing. I'm impressed. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. I bet you don't have this one, the Bible in basic English. <laughs> Who, that's, a, that's not a common one. <laughs> They're smart, Alex. <laughs> Who, being the outshining of his glory, the true image of his substance. And then this one you'll have, the message version. The sun perfectly mirrors and is stamped with God's nature. Isn't that something? Uh, Down toward the end, the, the, the bottom of that. The sun perfectly mirrors God and is stamped with God's nature. He holds everything together by what he says. 
So here's what we're saying. The first, one of the first, these are not in any particular order. The Jesus came to show us the Father so we would know what the Father was like. Colossians 1.15 says that Christ is the, in, the visible image of the invisible God. So just think about this. This is something I heard Pastor Dave when I was a student back at school in 1979. Uh, Brother Hagen said, if you want to know what God is like, just look at Jesus. Because Jesus was the exact representation uh, of, of the character, nature, personality, heart of God. Number two, and this is really something I think that's good for us to hear at the beginning of the year. Uh, Jesus came to carry out the will of the Father. In John 6, 38, and all these guys are going to be new living, but he said, John 6, 38, he said, I've come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will. I mean, how many times do we hear Jesus? Well, I mean, one per time in particular where he used these exact words, but really his whole life demonstrated this. His whole life demonstrated not my will, but your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. And how many times in the course of our life do we have to realize there's some things we want that may or may not be what God desires for us? And especially when you stop and think, if Jesus, and I hope I'm understanding this right, but if Jesus had to surrender His will to the Father's will, how much more would we need to? You say, well, did Jesus have a will separate from the will of the Father? Well, He must have, you know, because He became man. He became human, took on all the human attributes except for sin. For Jesus to say, not my will, but your will be done, if their wills were one and the exact same and, and He didn't have His own separate independent will, then that prayer doesn't make any sense. You say, what was Jesus' will? Well, from a human standpoint, he didn't want to go through Calvary. He's sweating drops of blood. You know, if I said to you, hey, after this service, um, we just think it would be good if uh, we just tied you to a pole and beat you for an hour and ripped shreds of skin off of you, you know, with whips that had, you know, metal and and, and, and jagged glass tight, and we're just going to whip you until you're basically not humanly recognizable. And then we're going to take you out to a cross, and we're going to take big spikes and run them through your the, the wrist, is you know, probably the wrist that where the spike went. That was considered part of the hand. And, 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 and spikes through your feet, and, and you're going to hang on a cross and die. And it's, you're going to be up there for six torturous hours. Is that something you want? You'd say, no, probably not. You, you, in other words, you say, that's not what I will. But Jesus said, it's not what I will, it's what he wills. He was submitted to the will of God. More than to his own human preferences. There was nothing self-willed or rebellious about Jesus. He was completely in sync. He just lived a, a devoted, consecrated life of 
yielding to the will of the Father, not putting his personal preferences first, but putting the will of God first in all things. Number three, and this is interesting, Jesus came to testify to the truth. Jesus came to testify to the truth. He said that in John chapter 18, verse 37. John chapter 18, verse 37. And he said, um, uh, at the end of that, oh, in the middle part of that, he said, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. It's interesting that um, Pilate's question is a question people are still asking today. You remember what Pilate asked? What is truth? And people still don't know what truth is. Uh, you know, we, we've got an interesting thing going on in our society where everybody gets to define their own truth. And um, when, you, when you eradicate the idea of moral absolutes, okay? Now, your truth may be, your personal truth may be that you can float. But when you step off a tall building, your truth doesn't help any. You're going to plummet. Why? Because there is the truth. It's called the law of gravity. And um, Jesus came to testify of truth. What is truth? This is what, you know, Pilate asks. This is what people wonder today. Well, the, the classic definition of truth, truth is that which corresponds to reality. It's not wishful thinking. It's not preference. It's not... Uh, idealism, it's not, truth is that which corresponds to reality. And so, um, you know, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, he, he died believing that. He rose from the dead believing that. He still believes that today. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Um, today there's just this fog across secular humanity that nobody knows what truth is. Uh, you know, well, you know, you have your truth, I have my truth, and, you know, that type of thing. But the bottom line is there is a universal truth that is established by God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The psalmist said, all your words are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. That's Psalm 119, verse 160. And right after that, the psalmist said, Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. And so I know people make their own decisions, and some people just see the Bible as, you know, being like other books. And, you know, well, all different religions have their different books and so on and so forth. I just happen to believe that the Bible is God's revealed truth. It doesn't represent the philosophies of man. How many of you know the philosophies of man are constantly changing? You know, I'm all for education and that type of thing, but when you go to university and all that, you know, half of what you learn five years from now, they're going to say, well, we, don't, we found out that's not really correct anymore. They're going to be constantly updating and revising and so on. And, you know, I just think back, you know, not terribly far, just a couple hundred years ago in our history, you know, for example, when George Washington uh, 
in his latter years went out for a ride on a I don't know, cold rainy day or something of that nature and he, he got some kind of infection and all that. Uh, the truth, the, any medical doctor would tell you at that time, well, the way to treat this is to bleed the patient. They basically bled him to death because of what was true. A few years later, they found out, well, no, that's not true. I'm all, for, I'm all for medical. Thank God for doctors. Thank God for nurses. Thank God for all the different things that can help people. But what we just there's only one thing that's eternally true, and that's God's word. Number four, the fourth reason Jesus came was to shine as a light. In John 8, 12, he talked about, he said, I am the light of the world. And light, you know, uh, we think of physical light, and I know many people deal with uh, issues, what, what's called SAD, seasonal affective disorder. I, I've preached in, I remember preaching once in Norway, and uh, I don't know if we were above the Arctic Circle or right by it, but... Um, you know, parts of the time you go way up north in Alaska, way up north in Canada, you know, they might have, you know, months of darkness. And maybe it's times the sun will pop up over the horizon for about 30 minutes and back down. But of course, in the winter, in the summertime, then the sun will be out for 23 and a half hours and that type of thing. But um, people are affected by darkness. You know, uh, people are sensitive to that type of thing. We need light from a health standpoint. And uh, we, may, we may take light for granted. Um, I remember a few years ago, um, we, and this probably, I'm not going to get any sympathy from you on this, but we had an ice storm in Tulsa. I know that's <laughs> rough. And, uh, but we lost electricity for about six or seven days. And, and um, I remember uh, whining and, and uh, we had a little tiny generator. We could do about one light and one space heater, you know, that type of thing. And, and um, so we really thought we were suffering. And uh, I just remember, you know, just telling them, I just don't like it. It's dark all the time. And, and uh, right before our heat came on, I said, uh, and it has to be 38 degrees in this house and all that. Well, when it, the electricity came back on, I checked the thermometer. It was like 56 or 50. <laughs> So, but you know, it disorients you, you know, um, it can be five degrees out, but if it's dark and overcast, as opposed to the sunshine, it, it, there's a different feeling about it. You, you understand what I'm seeing? And, uh, you know, we, we may take for granted when Jesus says, I am the light of the world. But if you've been in a dark cave, you know, lost for a couple weeks and they finally bring you out of that dark cave into the light you're going to thank God for the light. You know, something that we just take so much for granted. But light and darkness are constant themes in the Bible. All the way going back to creation, God said, let there be light. And then he separated the light from the darkness. Not only is Jesus the light, but um, uh, we get to reflect his light. We get to be light bearers. And there is uh, just immense darkness in the earth today. And we have a really important role to play because Jesus wants to shine through us. Number five, this is huge. Jesus came to seek 
and to save the lost. Came to seek and to save the lost. Luke 19.10. Such a powerful verse. Luke 19.10. Jesus said, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. We, we have to remember that Jesus loves lost people. And, and especially if we've been in the things of God for a long time, if we've known assurance of salvation, if we have experientially the comfort of the Holy Spirit, we, we can tend to get a little bit calloused and not really appreciate the plight of people who are lost, who are dead in trespasses and sin, people who are separated from God without Christ and without hope. A, a preacher I know once was speaking at a convention. I was in a hotel ballroom. And so, you know, when you're in the meeting, it's all the Christians and everything. When you go out into the hotel lobby, it's whoever. And he, uh, he preached and you know, in the conference in the hotel ballroom, and then he was going to his room. He got in the elevator, and right before the door shut, three drunk guys got on. And they were falling down drunk. They were using horrible, you know, vulgar language, just slobbering, you know, and that type of thing. And, in, in, and he, he admitted this. He said, in, in my self-righteousness, he said, I looked at those, and I thought, that is disgusting. Why are they acting that way? And, and he said, from that judgmental perspective, he said, the Lord spoke in his heart and said, Son, the only difference between them and you is me. George Whitfield, the famous preacher from the days preceding the American Revolution, saw a guy being taken to the gallows to be hanged for some crime he had committed. And and his heart was moved with compassion. He says, there, but for the grace of God go I. Jesus came to save sinners. I'm concerned that, that some people have lost the reality of what lostness is all about. You know, some people have bought into kind of a universal mindset that, well, you know, everybody's going to be saved eventually. And, you know, so... They just haven't, you know, progressed, you know, but they will. And, you know, God's going to, you know, but listen to what Jesus said. This is John uh, 3, 16 and 17. A lot of times um, we, we know John 3, 16, but we forget 17 and 17 is huge. Uh, it reads, let's look at this together. John 3, 16, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. The next verse, verse 17, says, God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Even though Jesus didn't come to judge the world, there is a judgment that is there. Um, there is a perishing that is there. And we need to understand that uh, Jesus came, you know, for that very specific purpose. Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us 
while we were yet sinners. See, as Christians, we, we need to understand we're not better than anybody else. We were just as lost as everybody. You say, well, but I know people who've done a lot worse stuff than I have. You know, I mean, I never robbed a bank. I never uh, killed anybody, that type of thing. So I'm, I'm a better sinner than them. Did you know that the book of James says, if you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you're guilty of the whole thing. There, there's, there's not degrees of lost. Like somebody said, well, they're almost saved. No, there's no such thing as almost saved. You're either saved or you're lost. So Jesus came into the world to save lost people. Number six, number six, Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. In uh, Mark chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus talked about people that are healthy. They don't need a doctor. But people who are sick need a doctor. He said, uh, I've, not, I've come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. One of the greatest realizations you can come to is when you step away from rationalization and minimizing sin and call it for what it is. Well, I'm not as bad as other people. No, if, if, I, if I'm not in Christ, I'm lost and I need a Savior. Jesus came to call lost people to himself. Uh, number seven, and this, is, this gets huge also, Jesus came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's a direct, almost a direct statement from Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where Jesus said, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life a ransom for many. There's really two thoughts here. One is to serve. You can serve somebody without giving your life for them. Um, you know, servanthood is a core ethic of the Christian faith. And one thing I love about churches when they gather is that people, people who've allowed the character of Christ to be developed in them to the point where they begin to serve others. Formally, informally, through positions, just spontaneously, uh, with a title, without a title. Um, they just have a servant's heart. They're always, who can I hold a door for? Who can I help? Who can? They're just always looking for ways to be a blessing to somebody else. That, that shows me that the character of Christ has been formed on the inside of you. Um, when a person is, um, does not have some of that developed on the inside of them, they can just really come to church and say, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? I remember a story uh, shared with me by a pastor. He said they had uh, begun to update their music a little bit. They, he said, you know, we'd been pretty antiquated in some of our songs, and we began to use some newer songs, more contemporary music in church. And he says, I was really concerned. The pastor, I was really concerned it was going to offend some of our older people because, you know, they particularly love the hymns and so on. And he said after church one Sunday, 
a lady came up to him and said, Pastor, I, I want to talk to you for a minute. And it was one of the, he used to say, gray, I've got gray hair now, so I can't. Anyway, uh, my wife lovingly calls them the oldies. And if you understand my wife's heart, she loves old people. And we're, we're older now. We're, I'm, I'm going on Medicare in March. And um, so uh, got to be careful some of this language. But this person who was a senior citizen came up to the pastor and said, I want to talk to you. And his heart just kind of sunk because he thought, uh, I'm going to hear it now. And she said, uh, Pastor, I notice you've been, uh, uh, we've been singing, uh, not singing the old songs as much. And he said, yes, ma'am, you're correct. She said, I noticed that um, we're singing a lot uh, younger songs that younger people would like. And he said, yes, ma'am, that's right. And she said, well, I just want you to know. She said, I really like those old songs. She said, uh, but I can listen to those all week long at my house. She said, uh, but since you've started doing that, uh, he, she said, I've noticed my grandson, I bring him to church whenever he'll come. I've noticed my grandson starting to pay more attention. And if that helps reach young people, she said, I've known Jesus for decades. She said, if that, if that other, you know, younger music helps reach people like my grandson and gets him saved, she said, I just want you, I'm behind you 100%. And, and she said, I can, I can enjoy, you know, my songs on the, you know, my CDs and all that all, all week long. And, and see, that's, that's a heart that cares about reaching others. But Jesus didn't just come to serve others. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, when we think ransom, we think hostage situations. And um, in a sense, we were held hostage. We were held hostage, hostage to sin, to Satan, uh, to the power of darkness. Uh, Jesus gave his life so that we could be set free. And we've all seen the cop shows. We've all seen the deals where there's a hostage situation and the, the hero of the movie will go in and, you know, say, I'm unarmed, set, set the hostages free. You can have me. I'm a high-value hostage. Let, let these others go. And they offer their life. And that's what Jesus did for us. So purpose number eight of why Jesus came, and this, this is where it gets intense. Jesus came to destroy him who had the power of death. Jesus came to destroy him who had the power of death. You can read about that. I'm not going to quote the scriptures, but in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, and 1 John 3, 8, oh, that one's real simple. It just says he came to destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and destroy the works of the devil. Um, so when, when the Bible says that Jesus came to destroy him who had the power of death and destroy the works of the devil, the, the word means uh, to render powerless or ineffective, to make of no effect, to nullify or take away the power of a thing. That's what Jesus has done. That's why we don't need to fear the devil. We don't need to fear the works of the devil, including death. Uh, Jesus, you know, there's, there's a story about a, a, a man and his son who are out driving on a country road, windows down on a beautiful day, and um, 
the, the little boy, the family knew the little boy had a severe allergic situation when it came to bee stings. And uh, if he'd get stung, he'd have to get immediate treatment or he'd, you know, not be able to breathe and die. And uh, as they're driving down this country road with their windows down, a bee flies in the compartment of the car. And uh, the little boy just goes into a panic. And the dad, this is a cool dad story. I like cool dad stories. The dad is driving and he sees the bee flying around and he just reaches out like that and grabs it. You know what happens when you grab a bee. He got stung, and then he, he shakes the thing, and then the bee flies. You know, I think the bee will die quickly, but it, and, and the little boy is still panicking. And the dad just says, look, son, uh, you don't need to be afraid. I took the sting. Bee was still flying around. Satan's still around. But the Bible says he took the sting. We don't need to fear death. We don't need to fear the devil. Number nine, Jesus came to die. Jesus came to die. You know, one thing Jesus knew emphatically was he, his mission involved dying for others. When it was close to his time of death, John 12, 27, this is so powerful. John 12, 27 Jesus said, now my soul is deeply troubled because he knew he's about to die. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But this is the very reason I came. Jesus' death was no accident. As a matter of fact, it was really part of a, a plan of God that was conceived before eternity. Before The Bible says that Jesus is the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. I mean, for, for Adam and Eve to sin and for God to immediately say, there's coming the seed of a woman who will crush the head, the authority of the serpent. This, Jesus' death was no afterthought. It was no, um, it was no accident. Jesus was not a helpless victim. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, the, one of the things I love in John's gospel well, two things in, in, in the different Gospels. How many of you know Peter pulled out a sword and cut off a guy's ear? Now, so Jesus, we know his team had two swords. And of course, Peter's going to have one of them, right? Peter's always going to be, you know, yeah. And he probably decided who got the second one. Peter was the boss. And... Um, the, the soldiers that came out to him, there were around 600. So that means Peter would have had to have taken out 300. The other disciple would have had to taken out 300. And the person that Peter goes after is not one of the soldiers, but the high priest's servant. He cuts his ear off. And Jesus says, Peter, put your sword up. He says, don't you know, he said, I could call my father right now and, and he would give me, what was it, 12 legion of angels? A legion was 6,000. That's 72,000 angels to handle 600 soldiers. That's not a big problem. 
In the Old Testament, one angel took out 185,000 enemy soldiers in one night. So Jesus is able to have 72,000. But, you know, Jesus refused to ask for that because he knew he had to go through with the Father's plan to die. And then when they came out, uh, Jesus said, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am. Well, you know what that goes back to? Exodus, where Jesus, or well, it actually was Jesus before he came in the flesh, a, a pre, uh, pre-incarnational, pre-Bethlehemic appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, from the burning bush, God said, I am who I am. And so they show up and ask, you know, Jesus says, who are you looking for? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am. And you know what? They all fell back to the ground. Do you know Jesus could have left them in that state for however long he wanted, walked away. They had woken up an hour later and said, where'd he go? Where'd, you know? No, they got right back up and Jesus willingly went with them. The death of Jesus was pre-planned, premeditated, intentional, and deliberate. It was God's way of rescuing us. It was God's way of saving us. And number 10, and with a good, good note here, Jesus came to give us an abundant life. I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Let's look, let's look at John 10, 10. We're going to test out the guys in the video book. You guys ready for a contest? All right. Yeah, thank you. You got there before I asked you to put it up. Good. You guys, you guys are awesome. Here's how, I'm, I want to share how this reads in several different translations. The New Living Translation says, My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. The NIV says, I have come that they might have life and that they might have it to the full. CEB, that's not a common translation. Do you have CEB? Let's see how deep these are. You got it, okay. The CEB says, common English, I came so that they could have life. Indeed, so that they could live life to the fullest. Everything that the world says is going to enable you to live life to the fullest isn't going to help you live life to the fullest. Everything that the world says, this is the way to do it, this is the way to gratify yourself, this is the way to, you know, have fun, is, is the, the, it leads to death. Jesus is the way to have life to the fullest. The Bible in basic English again, the BBE says, I have come so that they might have life and have it in greater measure. The message version says, I came so that they can have real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. And the Amplified Classic says, I came that they might have and enjoy life. Do you know it's okay to enjoy life? God gave us things to enjoy. We can enjoy a beach, which we know somebody that's doing that right now. We can enjoy a mountain. We can enjoy a mischievous dog, right? We can enjoy friends. Christians are supposed to be the happiest people 
on the face of the earth. We're free to enjoy life. And the Amplified Classic says, I came that they might have and enjoy life and have it in abundance to the full till it overflows. You know, Jesus, he really is the friend who sticks closer than a brother. And having an abundant life doesn't mean you don't face challenges. We have a little booklet out there called um, Because the Lord is My Shepherd. And, and life is full of challenges because we live in a fallen world and, and we're still seeing the effects of Adam's sin all around us. And we will until we get glorified bodies and get a new heavens and a new earth and that type of thing. But Jesus is the friend that sticks closer than a brother. And to say that we're going to have an abundant life, doesn't, that's not the same as saying we're going to have a life devoid of challenges or problems or conflicts. It's that, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. And we can all circumstantially, maybe you had some of this in 23, maybe you're facing some big challenges. You may have some challenges that seem to, you know, generate fear and, and uh, concern and worry and things like that. I just, just, I just want to encourage you to uh, put yourself close under the arms and in the embrace of Jesus because he is committed to see you through. He came to reveal the Father to us. He came to destroy death and, and to give us an abundant life. And that's what he wants for every single one of us. Let me close with this little story. Um, this is a story I borrowed from another minister who told it better than I probably can. But how many of you know the thief on the cross? There were two thieves on the cross. One just cursed until the end, but one of them said, you know what, we're guilty. And stop, don't, don't curse this innocent man. You know, we're here because we deserve to be. This man did nothing wrong. And he said, Lord, I want you to remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus said, I'm telling you right now, you're going to be with me in paradise. And Jesus was the first one to die. They put the spear in and water and blood came out, which means there had been a separation of the fluids already and um, proved he was dead. The other two were still alive and so they broke their legs so that they could no longer push up to breathe. You know, pretty horrific stuff. But the, the story is, and this is an imaginary story, that the, the repentant thief on the cross um, went to heaven and stood at the gate, and an angel said, uh, well, we weren't expecting you. So this is a really unscriptural story, so just, but there's a, a cute imaginative thing in it. He said, well, we, you know, and he said, uh, tell us, what, what, what is your view? This is the angel talking to the guy, because, you know, this is a surprise. He's been a criminal all his life. He says, uh, what, what is your view on uh, uh, justification? And, and the guy looks at him and says, I, I have no idea what that means. And the angel said, well, what's your view on inerrancy of Scripture? 
And the, the, the guy says, I, I don't know what that is. And he says, well, what, what's your view of eschatology? What's your view of anti? He said, sir, he, he said, I, I, I don't know anything that you're talking about. And the angel said, well, why are you even here? And he says, well, I don't know any of those things you're talking about. All I know is that the guy on the middle cross told me I could come. The guy on the middle cross told me I could come. I love deep theological studies and all that, but you know what? When it comes right down to it, you know what you need to know? The most important thing you need to know is that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Amen.